0: Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by
1: Ops Analytica. Hi, this podcast is sponsored by Ops Analytica, the restaurant checklist inspection and reporting platform. If you are trying to get better visibility into your daily operations and hold your managers more accountable and run better operations, check us out at OpsAnalytica.com. That's O-P-S-A-N-A-L-I-T-I-C-A.com or just search restaurant checklist app.
0: All right. Uh, Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant op show. Uh, Today, I've got Adam Frager with us. He's a uh, restaurant tour slash entrepreneur here in St. Louis. He's an owner, operator, and partner of two restaurants, which I'll tell you more about, I'm sure. Um, And then he's also developed a point of sale system uh, for restaurants based on his experience. And uh, a little history, Adam and I met a long time ago now. Uh, back at the turn of the century, in uh, Breckenridge, Colorado, we threw some mutual friends, and uh, you know, back then when most of us were just skiing and working in restaurants, Adam actually owned a uh, a bar slash nightclub there, so he was busy working all the time. But uh, Adam, thanks for joining. Glad you could make it.
1: Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: All right. So um, yeah. Just casual, loose. We'll have a little fun. We're going to learn uh, about Adam and his, uh, his adventures here. So real quick, Adam, just start and give an overview of how you got into the restaurant industry. When did you start? What drew you to it? And you know, go up into where you are today.
1: Yeah, uh, so how I got started was when we were out in Colorado, I wanted to just be a ski bum for a couple years after graduating and I never really thought about getting into any type of hospitality business. It sort of fell into my lap. Uh, a mutual friend who was a real estate developer uh, knew of this bar that was going under and um, it just seemed like a fun thing to do. I was probably too young and dumb to know what I was getting myself into, but uh kind of did that for about six years had a lot of fun and lo and behold I uh, learned that I really enjoyed bartending, I really enjoyed uh, the hospitality business. Came back to St. Louis in 2005, 2006. Um, Thought I was going to be leaving the hospitality business but it pulled me back in and um, it's around the same time that I discovered uh, craft Cocktails and uh, it took on a whole new perspective. Because before when I was just slinging drinks, it's really great to see your friends and and have a lot of fun in that environment, be able to interact, serve people. But as soon as I learned actually how to make really good cocktails, then that interaction took on a greater importance. It uh, allowed me to learn about who it was I was serving, learn about their palate, and be able to make cocktails based around uh, where their palate was then, and also be able to give them a new experience. So that's, I'd say right around that time is when I truly fell in love with the restaurant industry. Um, In many ways, it kind of changed my view on the restaurant industry. I was maybe a little bit more mindless in how I consumed uh, drinks and food prior to getting into craft cocktails um, after doing that i started to really appreciate the the nuances the the subtleties the complexities and um, not to mention, craft cocktails are a lot stronger <laughs> in many cases, so I would try to slow down my pace, um, and it just allowed me to appreciate uh, the finer things of restaurants. And um, That was the idea uh, behind our restaurant Blood and Sand. Um, we had the idea shortly thereafter, maybe around 2007, it took us a while to get it up and running, um, but we, our unique thing about Blood and Sand is that it's private. It's not open to the public, and the reason why we chose to be private is Is really for one reason only which was that we felt that uh, being private gave us control over the environment so that we could spend as much time as possible creating relationships with our members so that we could get to know them Um, not only get to know their palate but a lot of times they might have special requests or uh, special occasions and just being able to to do quality over quantity was something that uh, myself and my business partner both naturally gravitated towards and Um, Yeah, that uh, led us to open up a second restaurant shortly thereafter called Death in the Afternoon. Um, And that also uh, kind of paved the way for me to um, meet my uh, other business partner, my other business venture, which is really what I'll be focusing on for probably the rest of my life, which is uh, called Brigade Society. It's a point of sale company that we focus on uh, restaurants and um, being able to really solve the problems that, that restaurant owners experience with their point of sale. Okay, great. Yeah, and that's uh, that's pretty important to note that you
0: evolved from, I guess, your own frustrations. I would say.
1: Absolutely, yeah. We uh, the worst nights we've ever had at Blood and Sand have been as a result of our point of sale and because it crashed, because it lost checks, because it gave us some type of problem and that just seemed pretty ridiculous that uh, it's hard enough to be successful in the restaurant industry. You don't need your technology partner screwing you over and making it more yep. challenging. Sure thing. So Back to the um, craft cocktails, when
0: you got into that, where you, are you self-taught? Did you go to any training there or did you have a mentor? Or-
1: Yeah, um, I would say uh, how I got into it was my business partner, T.J. uh, Vitlichel. he um, and I both kind of sort of discovered at the same time, but no question, he was fortunate enough to work with a guy named Ted Kilgore, and Ted is uh, sort of now a deservedly so a legend in the St. Louis bartending craft cocktail community because Ted was really the first person to be doing it in St. Louis, and in hindsight, um, there just weren't that many people at the time uh, anywhere in the Midwest. I mean, I remember when uh, Violet Hour opened up in Chicago, and that was Chicago's first cocktail bar. and That was a really big deal, and we went up there, and um, you know, it, it, it seemed like we were a little late in the game at the time, because in New York and Chicago, uh, the cocktail renaissance had started a couple of years before us getting into it, but now with a little bit of perspective, it's pretty clear we're really on the early adapter stage of it. So um, Ted, although he was definitely our mentor in, in the fact that he opened it to us and I would have probably never gotten as excited as I did if it wasn't for Ted, uh, geeking out in his basement. Um, so he deserves all the credit. Ted will tell you that his development was in the early stages when, when he we met Ted and looking at his cocktail menus now versus what they are today or even five years ago are night and day different. So um, quite frankly, a lot of it back then was we were all sort of experimenting and, and teaching ourselves ourselves. Um, Thankfully, there was shortly thereafter uh, a program called BAR, um, Beverage Alcohol Resource, and that was established sort of by the legends of the industry. So you have Dale DeGroff, who's uh, widely considered to be uh one of the only people to keep alive the craft cocktail scene during the 80s he had a bar in new york called the rainbow room and he was really the only person back in the 80s that was still using fresh juices and and still making cocktails the right way when everybody in the 80s was doing you know uh pre-batched sugary cocktails with mixers and all kinds of nasty drinks. Um, also Doug Frost, who is a master sommelier, master quarter wines. He's also a huge fan of spirits. He's one of the founders along with Paul Picoult, who wrote, uh, I think it's called the whiskey Bible, uh, if I'm not mistaken, but he's, um, considered to have one of the best palates in the world, especially when it comes to whiskeys of, uh, all varieties. So yeah, they decided to start this program called beverage alcohol resource, um, probably about 10 years ago to really delineate the bartenders that were serious about the craft and the bartenders that were just slinging Jack and Cokes. So they kind of created this program where there was a little bit of accreditation um, that any bar that, that could see a potential applicant that had this accreditation would know that they have the basics and the tools. So um, that was probably the only training that I ever really had, taking their course, getting certified in them. Um, it was a really great experience and that was very valuable. Uh, but beyond that, it's, it's, it always has been and I think it kind of always will be that it's great to have a foundation, but beyond that, it's a lot of exploration. It's a lot like chefs, you know, once you get the, the foundation, then it's it's what you get out of it is what you're going to put into it and how much uh, energy and enthusiasm and creativity you have, the more you're going to experience, the better you're going to become. Yep, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I thought you'd told me that
0: before, so I thought that was a cool story. <laughs> Yeah. Um and that that's the craft cocktail. That was a big foundation of Blood and Sand, right? Absolutely. Um that was really we thought
1: uh, in the very beginning that was probably going to be like maybe 70% of our sales. Uh we that was what Tish and I were known for. We'd gotten a little bit of press before opening it up. Had a little bit of a following. Um, so it was always going to be the foundation, but thankfully we were able to uh find some really great chef partners who elevated the food in ways that we quite honestly, probably never fully envisioned. We always knew we wanted to have a quality food program that was on par with our cocktail program. Um, And I think just because we had standards, uh, we wanted to have a professional environment that we were able to attract quality chefs that were uh, looking for the same experience. And whether you're front of the house or back of the house, whether you're a chef or a a bartender mixologist, um, if you have standards, if you have aspirations to be good and and be professional, then there's, there's always going to be a a level of respect and admiration that can foster some really good relationships. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: So is there, uh, with the brigade society, is there a bartender element to that too? Or is it more server oriented?
1: Um, I wouldn't necessarily consider it to be either server or bartender. Um, the, the brigade is what we're trying to do with brigade is, um, really pull the restaurant industry out of the dark ages when it comes to technology. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I don't know if you've uh, experienced it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you have. Is that, uh, you know, when it comes to technology in the restaurants, um, it is, it's kind of lived in the dark ages for a really long time and rightfully so, or I should say justifiably so, not rightfully so, but justifiably so only because if you think about it, it's, um, the people that are in the restaurant industry, there's there's two big problems that I noticed, having been a restaurateur all my life, and, and having uh, some empathy for this, and also now uh, serving restaurateurs from a technology standpoint, is um, first and foremost, people in the restaurant industry, very very few have any type of technology understanding. You know, they've if you think about it, they've if they're a, a chef that opens up their own restaurant it's taken a many, many hours of having a singular focus on cooking and getting better at cooking and uh, focusing on that, that they don't have a whole lot of time to learn about technology, to stay on top of technology trends and to to be able to understand how it works. Um, And then the second component is that People in the restaurant industry just don't have any time. So the, there's so many things pulling at you. There's so many needs. There's so many things. Every independent restaurant owner is always multitasking and has all kinds of stuff to do that the idea of learning to do technology, implementing that technology, it seems daunting in a process that they frankly don't want to partake in. So um, you know, I think what we knew and has been validated, and I'm sure you probably can say the same thing, is that unless you have an overwhelming value proposition from a technology standpoint, it's probably not going to be accepted. It's not going to be used. It could be a great idea. It could be really useful, but it has to be so overwhelmingly apparent that this is going to save them money. It's going to make them more profitable or it's going to make their lives easier that it's almost a no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And there's always a fire to put out. That's the
0: problem. And uh, Yes. And let's be honest too, in the restaurant industry, you don't you don't, you don't want your employees for the most part with their face buried in a computer or a phone or, um, you know, they're supposed to be out interacting with guests and creating a good experience. So, you know, that's absolutely, but I, and I think probably, uh, technology hopefully will be ease, more easily adaptable as, you know, our generation gets out of it. You know, everybody's coming out of in the workforce now and starting businesses now grew
1: up with smartphones and at least a laptop so hopefully yep i think you're yeah i think you're absolutely right i think it's and this is where i think the future is is going to be with restaurants and technology is that it's, you've got a younger generation, the millennial generation that is entering into that workforce that are now starting to open some of their own restaurants. They are so much more versed in technology than people that are in their 30s or 40s or 50s that just never had that understanding. So you're going to be able to Uh, not only communicate that, but they're going to demand it. They're used to uh, this language. They're used to uh, utilizing technology and and understanding it very quickly. So there's no question, I think, going to be a a drive for technology to be more important in restaurants. And it's pretty much going to be a necessity in terms of costs. Uh, Restaurants, it's the costs are just continually not working. Um, I'm sure you probably uh, are aware of the new law that goes into effect of December in terms of overtime yep. hours, and that's going to have a, uh, a huge effect on the restaurant industry. So labor costs are going up, food costs are going up, um, you know, rent's going up, everything's going up, but the restaurants are having a hard time charging a whole lot more. So your profit margins, which were a razor thin to begin with, are only getting smaller. So uh, one of the the quickest ways to solve some of those cost factors is through technology. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, it's going to be interesting couple of years as all these new uh,
0: regulations get implemented. It's going to be, it's going to be tough.
1: Yeah. It's uh, it's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm kind of, I, I have some ideas of where the restaurant industry is going to go, but um, you know, I'm as curious as the next guy to see how it all shakes out. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um. So I'm guessing the biggest project you're
1: working on now is Brigade. It is. Yep. It's. Uh, I've. I've learned uh, uh, through experience that there are limits to what a human being can do <laughs> when it comes to multitasking. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, I never set out to have this grand ambition that I've got to conquer the world, or I got to have. I want to be a, a serial entrepreneur, or restaurateur. Really, I got into the three businesses that I have um, really because they just seemed like really great ideas and really fun projects and it was almost like, how do I not do this? Um, They kind of fell in my lap and uh, what I learned is that you got to start to say no sometimes (laughs) to things no matter how good of an idea is we think uh, when we project in the future, oh, I can do this, I can do that and I know maybe the lesson I learned was, um, I don't. I didn't, and I don't know if other people do this too. But uh, certainly, in my case, I didn't probably build in enough margin for error that I thought I was. But you never can predict all the things that can go wrong, or delayed, or unforeseen situations where you just get pulled into action, and and all it takes is just a, a little, a few things to not align perfectly, and next thing you know, you're falling behind and having to do too many things, and um, and we, I can get it done. It's just that I, uh, reason why I started these businesses in the first place is because I love working on them and I love being a part of it. And if all I'm doing is putting out fires or just managing the business and making sure that it runs, uh, without the time to really get creative and and excited about it, then it's it's kind of missing the point. And that's really kind of how um, you know Blood and Sand was born, and and how all of the businesses were born is I was at a space where. I could allow for some really fun, creative ideas to flow through. And when you're just inundated with things and have too many things going on, then it's really tough to do. So yes, um, that's why I'm um, slowly transitioning out of the restaurant uh, ownership business and into the uh, restaurant software supply business. And that'll be my focus, my sole focus uh, in the near future, very near future, and hopefully for the indefinite future.
0: Yep. There you go. Yeah. It, you, you mentioned something really uh, true. They're just in knowing you, um, you know, both your restaurant concepts are very unique. And, uh, you know, and I'm, and I'm sure that so the way you approach your businesses and wanting to be involved and, and make them great is probably Shining through in your POS,
1: too. Well, thank you very much. I hope so.
0: What's uh, one thing in either the industry or in your business that's keeping you up at night?
1: Um, You know, I don't, I'm going to answer that in a weird way, which is to say that uh, I've also come to appreciate and realize. How n- not having anything keep you up is really advantageous <laughs> that, you know, uh, being able to l- get your work done and and leave it there at the end of the day and have a quality of life to where you're not taking it home with you to your family or your wife and and being able to sleep and get quality sleep because... You know, you're know, you able to, to separate it or get everything done is something that I've uh, really come to appreciate because no question in, in running these businesses over the last five years, there have been a few nights where it's just, man, I got so much to do. And in many ways, that's uh, kind of what I'm trying to do with Brigade is uh, understanding I've gone through that experience and so many other friends of mine that are tours have had those experiences that it's so easy to take it home with you. It's so easy. I mean, there's it's seemingly never enough to to uh, enough time to get everything done there's always things that you could be doing more there's always more sales you could be driving more marketing efforts better cost savings and and knowing uh where to draw the line is something that um is it it takes a little bit of time to appreciate but where we think we can help with brigade is is kind of going back to what i was talking about which is if there's a way to just improve their quality life by making them better informed, giving them more control over their business, educating them on on how their business is performing, um, putting, being able to provide them with cost-saving measures, um, information that's going to improve their profitability. Those are just little things that if, if we're able to do successfully, then hopefully people can feel a little bit better about their business and not have to stress as much because they're not operating with such razor-thin margins. Yep. Yeah, what is that saying? Uh- stress
0: is worrying about the things you can't control, right? Just Try not to do Absolutely. that. Absolutely, that, yeah. that's a great saying. Yeah, try that's a great that saying. It's tough sometimes, but yeah, it's a good.
1: It is tough. I'm not. Yep. I'm not perfect at it. That's <laughs> for sure. But uh, yeah, I've, I've really come to appreciate the, you know, and I think the, um, uh, the things that always would stress me out were the stuff that. We're yeah. not finished. You know, it wasn't the stuff that that like I did, and now I'm worrying about the outcome or how it's going to turn out. It was always the things that were on my to-do list that I felt like I needed to get done, and that's somewhat subjective. Like what, what I can kind of create as big of a to-do list as I want. There's got to be some point where. You know, you say, look, I either get it done or I don't get it done. And then you look at the consequences and if you don't get it done, you know, are you okay to live with those? And if you, if you are, then, you know, let it go. Uh, It's not worth it. Right. Yep. Yep. Good answer. Let's see.
0: What about, oh yeah, this is interesting. And so speaking in regards to the restaurant industry, what is um, the one thing that's not happening in the industry that you thought would be happening now, whether it's technology or just a way of doing business or.
1: Yeah, I think it's probably technology. Cause if you look at the restaurant the industry, there's always innovation. Like I, I'm always amazed at how no one ever heard of kale before two years ago. Like kale has been around right. forever, <laughs> but like, why are we just now discovering this or, Quinoa. Like 10 years ago, no one in the United States knew what the hell quinoa was. And now everything, you can't go anywhere with quinoa. So somehow we're always discovering new things, <laughs> even though they've been around forever. And and just there's always the innovation on the in the restaurant world when it comes to menus and and spirits and you know those are because people love those things. That's what they they love to do. So they're always looking to push the envelope. People in the restaurant they don't really love technology they love the benefits of it, but they don't love technology. So they're not driving it and demanding it. Um, so I think that's kind of what I'm surprised hasn't taken place. My software developer, uh, when we first started this about three and a half years ago, and uh, kind of he he knew nothing about the restaurant industry. He never uh, was not a restaurant was not a foodie. Um, he enjoyed food, but uh, you know he just wasn't very versed in in anything when it came to restaurants. So we try to tell him where. Restaurant technology stood, and point of sale industry stood at that time, and he had a really hard time believing us that that it could be this bad and this archaic. And it wasn't until he, we were about six months in, and I'll, i remember having this conversation. We were, you know, he was becoming very familiar with our future competitors, and and who are these billion dollar companies <laughs> that have made all this had all this success in the restaurant world, selling their point of sales, and he's like, this is garbage, this is this is a terrible platform, terrible code, uh, really poorly run a company, and we're like, yeah, now you know <laughs> what we're talking about. And so far, it's, uh, I mean, the joke was for, I still, there's still uh, some truth for this to, the, to that. Um, we used to tell him, look, Awesome. Just build us a product that works and we'll sell. (laughs) I mean, that's all you need to do is like, it, it just works. It doesn't fail. It doesn't break down. If it works, we're golden. We got it made. And, uh, you know, there's still a lot of truth to that, but, uh, yeah, I think that's where I'm surprised it. I'm surprised. And I'm not surprised kind of what we were talking about earlier is that it's once you understand the dynamics, it's, I guess it's not surprising. Um, but it, it is only because of the, what's surprising is the, I guess the level of frustration and acceptance that, by and large, restaurant people have with with crappy technology, like they, it, and I'm I'm a guilty of it too. Back in the day, you know, you just think, okay, well, this is as good as it gets, or yeah, I guess there's nothing better, so you just figure out workarounds. You figure out how to deal with it. You you just ex- expect it to not work. You assume that it's going to give you headaches, and somehow that's acceptable. And I think that's, um, you know, I guess that's probably true of human nature and to some degree is you, in the beginning, there's this shock and this dismay and disappointment. And when you just realize or you think that there's no better option, you just kind of have to deal with it. Then you adjust, you adapt, and you you try to make the best of it. And then over time, you forget how bad it really is. That becomes your new normal is this This below mediocre product or service that you have to deal with, and you never realize how shocked you were in the beginning, and how much you, how far you've come in lowering your standards of what's acceptable. Yeah,
0: no, it is interesting. Uh, Tommy, my business partner, he says this. You know, he has got a funny joke about the restaurant industry. Outside of you know point of sales and credit cards, the restaurant industry operates the same as it did. Back when Jesus walked the earth, <laughs> you know? It's really true. You know, Absolutely. The, no, the it is. The only things That's a great that one. have really come out of it. And, uh, you know, and, and the point of sales haven't seemed to been updated in a long time. So, And credit card is as yeah, take so as it could be. I mean, that the whole uh, chip thing seems to be a fiasco.
1: Yeah, it's uh. Don't even get me started on EMV. <laughs> that is a whole other story. Yeah, it's just so slow. But it's slow. It's uh. It's there's a lot of impracticality to it. It's cumbersome. It's for the for the restaurant industry especially. Um, you know, and the the other thing is that the sort of the scare tactics that the credit card companies are employing with this are uh, a little shameful too. Yeah. But you know, it's I I don't think that the I don't think that it's going to be a long-term solution. I think there's going to be some players uh, and some better solutions that are going to come to the market in the next year or two that's going to make EMV sort of obsolete. Yeah, which is kind of crazy
0: because they made it this whole push
1: and all these banks issue all these new cards and yada, yada,
0: yada. That's a whole nother oh, yeah. podcast. Yep.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs>
0: um, all right, why don't you uh, recount a funny story from your life could be restaurant-related, probably industry-related.
1: Yeah, I remember we were, we were talking about that uh, a little bit before. I think uh, the way you phrased it was the funniest or uh, worst thing that has happened yeah. in my career. And uh, I thought about that, and I actually thought of a story that kind of combined uh, both a little bit. Maybe uh, funniest might I would substitute most yep. interesting. So back when I was in Colorado and I had – The live music venue, we, uh, in addition to doing shows at our place, we also were promoters and did shows at other venues around the state. And one of the shows we did was Old Dirty Bastard from the Wu Tang Clan. And we actually bought his tour for Colorado, and it was his first tour out of jail. This was back in like, I don't know when it was, 2004 or something, 2005. So we sold out. We had it in Breckenridge. We had it in Vail, Fort Collins, Boulder, uh, every place sold out. And I pick them up at the airport. And, and Denver first shows in Fort Collins. And uh, are you familiar with yep. Old Dirty Bastard yep. at all? <laughs> okay. So uh, for anybody that's not, it's uh, he is uh, – Legendary for just being very cracked out and hard to really understand. He was, um, I think uh, he was on, He had that famous MTV uh, episode when he was in that prime of Wu-Tang's uh, fame that he was going in with his food right. stamps and had like 10 baby <laughs> mamas that were all hounding him. And he was just an interesting character. Well, when I pick him up, uh, he was fairly normal, as normal as, as I was expecting. Um, I dropped him off at the hotel in Fort Collins. Uh, when I come back to pick him up after advancing the show, clearly he had gotten his hands on some crack <laughs> and was completely out of his mind. I take him to the show. Uh, am yes. I allowed to cuss on your, your podcast? Okay. So uh, after the show's delayed, he was supposed to start at 10 o'clock. It's now 1045. Crowd's getting restless. He goes out on stage. First words out of his mouth were, y'all think you fucking know me? <laughs> <laughs> Y'all don't fucking know me. Y'all don't know no fucking shit. Fuck all you motherfuckers. And then throws his mic and walks off the stage. Now the crowd—it was like you know, like a thousand college kids. They thought it was part of the act. They laughed. They thought it was cool. They're cheering. Well, f- another forty-five minutes go by. It's now like eleven thirty. He's still not on stage. And now they're getting pissed. They're starting to throw bottles broken glass is starting to flow. I go up to his cousin, who's his manager, I'm like, look man, you're about ready to get a riot. If you don't get ODB on stage, get him on here now. So the only way out is this back door and I'm (laughs) locking it to make sure you guys are trapped in here. And so he talked to him, he gets up on stage, He's. It was like the worst 30-minute performance ever. And he was so cracked out that he fell off the stage Uh, in Fort Collins at the Aggie Theater. It has like (laughs) a 15-foot stage. So when he landed, he blew out his knee. I was on the end of the stage, and I saw his knee just buckle. And right away, I was like, oh, my God, this dude's toast. His knee is shot. (laughs) So he was so cracked out. He didn't know. Uh, We we drive up to Vail for the, for the next show. And the whole ride up, he's complaining about his knee and he's complaining about how he can't breathe. And I have no sympathy because it was a very, I'm kind of bypassing the stressful part of the evening for myself, <laughs> but it was not a pleasant experience. And I'm like, you know, shut the hell up. I don't care about your knee. Of course, your knee hurts. You probably tore your ACL, you idiot. And we're driving up and he's like, well, I can't breathe. I'm like, have you ever been in the mountains? And he's like, no. And I said, well, th- there's this thing called altitude, which he'd never heard of. And I said, it's going to make it harder to breathe. He's like, I can't breathe. And I was like, I don't really care. So we go to Vail and uh, his, uh, what it turned out to be his last show ever was in Vail, Colorado. And he did the entire show (laughs) sitting down because he couldn't stand up. Uh, I made sure that he did not have any crack. Uh, So um, it it was actually an unbelievable show. He put on a fantastic show and he was supposed to play at Breckenridge that night and. The morning of, so this was Friday night in Vail. Uh, Saturday night was in Breckenridge, and that morning, uh, his cousin calls me. They're at the airport. He said, we're going back. Uh, ODB can't breathe. He's complaining about his knee. we got to go back to New York. I tried to tell him, like, you know, we're going to have to file a lawsuit. We've got contracts. We've got people that already paid. This is going to get messy. He's like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, we're, we're already at the airport. We're heading back. So I was like, all right, it is what it is. Uh, we'll deal with it. And... <clears throat> That he apparently, uh, when he landed in New York, he went straight to the Wu-Tang Studios and proceeded to do a boatload of crack. And that's when he OD'd and died um, that that night uh, at the Wu-Tang Studios. So I actually got... Um, uh, we later on, after this incident, like a year or two afterwards, uh, we ended up having a lot of the other Wu Tang guys perform it at, at our place, uh, like the RZA, the Jizza, and it was funny. They all knew who we were, and they joked. They're like, "Oh, you guys are the guys that <laughs> killed ODB." And first, I thought, like, it was like, "What are you talking about?" No, we didn't kill ODB. And they're like, "Oh yeah, no." He told us about how he went out to Colorado and couldn't breathe the whole time he was in the <laughs> studios. He just kept on talking about he couldn't breathe. We didn't know what he was talking about, uh, and they were. They knew that, like, look, man, he did more crack than we've ever seen anybody do. Like, it was just a matter of time. But they they were just joking, but they were definitely giving us some shit. But, yeah, it was uh, – uh, I had – Rolling Stone and Spin magazine calling me, and I didn't want any part of it. I, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, who's ODB? Uh, I got I got rid of all the evidence because what I found out when he died was his manager called me up and said, uh, "Hey Adam, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but uh, we got a situation." So I didn't tell you this, but ODB was not supposed to leave oh the state gosh. of New York for his parole violation. <laughs> I was like, Oh, great, now you tell me this. And he's like, And there's like. 9 or 10 baby mamas that are all going to be filing lawsuits and they're going after everything. So <laughs> yeah, you may just want to lay low on this one. I was like, good idea. So uh, that was kind of the interesting, funny part of it. The the worst part about this story is about a year ago, my brother, who was my business partner at the at the venue – uh, emailed me this link to an article talking about how somebody had paid $100,000 for what was supposedly the last known picture of ODB performing and but they mistakenly said that it was from the Aggie Theater it, that which was not his last show his last show was from Veil vale, oh. which I used to have pictures of that I got rid of because I didn't want any drama and apparently I could have <laughs> held it. it and sold it for more than $100,000 so yeah that was probably the, the oh, way the story that ends story. poorly for
0: me i think i remember hearing about that yeah uh, when it was
1: happening yeah ben ben used to ben used to give me some some shit about uh, how i used to all my friends used to give me shit about odb i've got this one friend of mine he really was pissed for a while because uh wu-tang was his favorite group he loved odb (laughs) and when he heard that i had some indirect influence on it (laughs) he was like what the hell did you do man why did you do Uh, that it's like i didn't do anything so, yeah, it was. Uh, I think time has healed all wounds, and now they can have a perspective on it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's
1: funny. Great story. Well,
0: good. Thank you. Well, hey, this has been great. So fun. Thank you so much for Absolutely, jumping man. on. Absolutely, man. Thank
1: you very much. I uh, love what you're doing. And I uh, wish you all the best in, in life and continued success with Ops Analytica and this podcast. I think it's a great idea.
0: Yeah, thanks. And uh, why don't you just uh, quickly tell people how they can... Uh, get a hold of you if they're interested in brigade or come see you at one of your restaurants or whatever.
1: Yeah. Um, you can check our, uh, our website for brigade. It's brigadesociety.com. Uh, society.com. B R I G A D E S O C I E T Y B R I G A D E S O C I E T Y.com. Um, or if you want to come try out Blood & Sand before we uh, sell it and move on, I'd love to have you. It's, um, it's at 1500 St. Charles Street in downtown St. Louis. Uh, just visit our website, bloodandsandstl.com. Um I can uh, grab an email that way, and we'd love to buy you a drink. Great.
0: Thanks, Adam. Have a good one. Great. Thanks, Eric.
1: Thanks, you Bye. too. Bye-bye.